of a blessing. Paul, as a matter of fact, tells us in Titus chapter 2 that we should be looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I could go on and on. One of my favorite passages in Hebrews talks about in chapter 10, verse 23 to 25, that we should not give up the assembling together as is the habit of some during COVID. No, as is the habit of some, but we should continue to gather together and consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds and all the more encouraging one another when as we see the day drawing near. The writer presumes that we should discern, that we are living in the season of the Lord's return. Notice I said the season, because the question remains, can we know when Jesus is coming again? Can we know the day or the hour? In a word, no. And you say, well, then what are you here to talk about, Tim? Why are you giving us a timeline of the end times? Because I think this is a critically important question. Turn with me, if you will, and some of my material will be on the slides in front of you, and some is on your outline. And I'll move fairly quick, but that's why I give you a handout so you can go home and test every word I'm telling you against what God's Word has to say. But in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus has gone to Jerusalem with his apostles. It says that he came out from the temple and was going away when the disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And oh, were they magnificent. You know, they don't call Herod the great, the great for just anything. He was a great builder. And to this day, you can go and see the retaining wall that surrounds the Temple Mount and the incredible majesty that obviously was present because some of these stones, even today, in place in that retaining wall, weigh hundreds of tons, and yet they are pieced together without any mortar, so tight you can't even slip a piece of paper in between. And we know that the temple was glorious in the day. And so having been there, Jesus looks about at this temple that has just recently been completed and says, Do you see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. We know that occurred in A.D. 70 when Rome sacked Jerusalem and tore down the temple. As a matter of fact, you can go today on the original streets of Jerusalem just below that Temple Mount and see where these giant stones were hurled down and crushed the pavement below. You can see that with your own eyes even today. But in the very next verse, it says, As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things happen? In other words, when will these stones be torn down? And... What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? A three-part question. Now, I would point out, Jesus didn't say, Oh, fellas, you got it all wrong. I'm not coming again. No, 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 no. This is just going to continue on just like it is right now. The world's never coming to an end. No, he didn't say that. I would point out also, even before he had left, these disciples, which sometimes didn't really get things very clearly, they already understood that Jesus was going to go away and he was going to come again. And so Jesus responds to them, beginning in verse 4, by answering and saying, See to it that no one misleads you. 
For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened. For those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. And Jesus went on for the rest of that chapter and into the 25th chapter to describe signs of the times. That is our base message at Lamb and Lion Ministries, pointing out the signs of the times that are multiplying all about us today. Signs of nature, signs of society. Boy, haven't they been evident over these last number of years. Signs that are spiritual in nature, both positive and negative. Signs of world politics, how the nations are configuring themselves just as foretold by God's prophetic word. Signs of technology that we see manifest about us that make it possible for one man to control the world, that being the Antichrist. And, of course, the the greatest sign of all, signs of Israel being regathered to its ancient homeland. You know, 100 years ago, your great-grandparents would have believed the Word of God and taken it on faith that He'll bring all these things to pass, but they wouldn't have seen the signs that we can see being manifest all about us. Just for an example, God promised that He'd bring the Jewish people back into their ancient homeland. 120 years ago, your great-grandparents would have said, why would the Jews want to go back there to that God-forsaken land? As Mark Twain described it, it's empty, desolate, and they're very happy in places like Germany and Poland and Russia. But virtually within our lifetimes, we've seen the Jews return to their ancient homeland. All of the signs are increasing, just like the verse indicated, with birth pangs in frequency and intensity, demonstrating that we are living in the season of the Lord's return. And as Adrian Rogers liked to say, it's getting gloriously dark. Now, was Adrian Rogers happy about the darkness descending upon the world? And he didn't even live to see all the transgender confusion, all the homosexual epidemic, all of the delusion to where even our newest Supreme Court justice doesn't know the meaning of the word woman. But he discerned already there was a darkness descending on the world. Was he happy about that? No. But he understood the prophetic word of God that as this darkness descends, as the signs manifest, just like we are seeing, it means Jesus is on the very threshold of heaven, ready to come for his bride. Well, where are we on God's prophetic timeline if this is true? The beginning stretched forward to the cross of Christ, and that began what we know as the church age. And it stretched forward now almost 2,000 years. Here we are in 2022 wondering what will come next. Some of you may be wondering, well, where does America fit into Bible prophecy? Stay after the question and answer period, and I'll address that question if you would like. But what the Lord reveals to us in Matthew chapter 24, verse 37, and also in Luke 17, 26 through 30, is that at the end times, Just before he comes again, the world would be just like it was in the days of Noah and Lot. And how was the world in the days of Noah and Lot? Well, we can turn to Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, and see that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil 
continually. Sounds like the evening newscast in recent years. We can tell that we are on the cusp of the end times. Again, the season of the Lord's return. I will never set a date. And one of the reasons many pastors are afraid to let someone come and speak about God's prophetic word is they've heard false teachers try to set a date or say, I figured it out. I've made a calculation. I can tell you the day, maybe even the hour. And that's completely false because Jesus said, no one knows, not even the Son, but only the Father. And so I'm not here to tell you a date. I'm just here to tell you, as Scripture repeatedly calls out, that we should be alert and looking for Jesus. And if you do so, what's, what's the goal? Well, if I'm looking for Christ, if I believe he could come any moment, then I'm going to be urgent about my evangelism. I don't have years and years. I'll get around to telling my neighbors and my friends about the Lord. No, he could come any time, and they could be swept into eternity of doom and despair. I need to be urgent about sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with those upon whom the wrath of God currently abides. I need to be serious about living a holy life. I like to use the analogy. If I told you the Queen of England was coming to your house sometime next year, you'd say, well, gee, we need to, we need to clean up around the place, probably ought to paint, and, and we'll have to vacuum and clean up, but we'll do all that next year sometime. But if I told you the Queen of England's coming to your house, it could be tonight, it could be tomorrow, sometime this week, next week, we don't know. You'd rush home tonight. You'd clean up and you'd keep your house in order for that very important guest. And if you really believe Jesus Christ could come any time, you would live in a manner reflective of being ready to receive the King. And finally, what's the other benefit of anticipating the Lord's soon return? Well, it means keeping our eyes on Jesus. And that has a blessing all of its own. I'll talk about it in a moment. So I want you to turn with me to two passages of Scripture. First of all, in Zechariah chapter 14. This is a passage I love to read, standing on the Mount of Olives, looking down at the eastern gate. Hear what the prophet records. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured and the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in the middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. You know, when Suleiman the Magnificent, an Ottoman Turkish ruler, a Muslim, built a city wall around the old city of Jerusalem, he heard about this prophecy of a Jewish Messiah coming. He said, aha, uh -huh, coming in from the east, huh? Well, I got the answer. Brick up the eastern gate so he can't get through, and then plant a Muslim cemetery in front of that gate because no Jewish holy man will walk through a Muslim cemetery. He obviously didn't read very carefully because when Jesus sets foot on the Mount of Olives, that valley is going to widen open when those Muslim tombs are going to move to the north and the south, and the gate's going to blow open so that who may come in? The King of glory. Who is the King of glory? the Lord strong and righteous. Lift up your heads, O gates. He will come in and ascend to Mount Zion to sit on the throne of his father David. And as it says in verse 9 of Zechariah 14, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name, the only one. 
I get chill bumps just talking about that. And when I go to the Mount of Olives, I feel like I have come home because I can see in my mind's eye accompanying the Lord when he returns to reign in glory there in Jerusalem. We'll leave your finger there for a moment, and let's turn over to Luke, or excuse me, to John, I'm sorry, John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, and hear what John has to say, recording the words of Jesus. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way I am going. Do those two visions of the Lord's coming align? I don't think they do. They seem like two separate events. And I absolutely believe that they are. Let's turn now to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And read what Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica. And oh, by the way, people that say, you know, Bible prophecy, that's kind of advanced. It, most people just need grounding in the gospel. They need advice on how to raise their children, on how to have a happy marriage. It, we don't really need all this prophetic word. And my response is, well, Paul planted a church in Thessalonica, and we know he was only there for a few weeks. And even in those few weeks... He was telling those new believers about Jesus coming again, which is why they wrote him to ask questions and responding to them. We have his letters called First and Second Thessalonians. But here's what he says in First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. I had a lady come up to me just a couple of nights ago and said, I don't like this word on your, your pamphlet. It talks about rapture. And I said, well, I'm, I'm sorry you don't like the word. She said, that's not in the Bible. And I said, no, ma'am, but the word Bible's not in the Bible either. And we talk about that a lot. The word Trinity is not in the Bible. That's a concept we're very familiar with. And actually, the word rapture is in the Bible right here in this verse. Because when it says caught up or snatched away, in the original Greek, it was harpazio. When it was translated to Latin vulgate, meaning the vulgar language of the common people, so they could read it, it was rapio. And that was eventually transliterated to rapture which is where we get the concept of being snatched away, caught up in the twinkling of an eye. So that word and that concept is right here in this verse and elsewhere. Leave your finger in that passage and let's turn over briefly to Rome or excuse me to Revelation chapter 19. And here the record of the Lord's return beginning in verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Who's John seeing right here? Jesus. And there's no doubt. And he says, And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. You say, well, who is that? Is that angels? No. In the preceding verses, it tells us that the church 
is given linen, clean and white, to wear, reflective that we have been purified, washed, and we are forever clean, and we are following after Jesus as he returns. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Do you see those two visions? You see, in Paul's visions, vision related in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Jesus appears in the heavens. He appears for his church as a deliverer in grace, and he comes as a bridegroom to gather his bride and take his bride back to a place he has prepared for us. But in Revelation 19, Jesus returns to earth with his church as a warrior. He returns in wrath, and he's coming to reign as a king again from the throne of his father David with a rod of iron. Two different visions, which is why I absolutely believe that the next prophetic event we're looking forward to is the rapture when Jesus, our bridegroom, comes for his bride. Well, some scoffers are saying, well, Tim, you're just an escapist. You just want to miss out on the tribulation. Well, yeah, yeah, I, I do. Am I wrong in that? No, actually I'm not. Well, but, but you know what? We, just, we don't deserve to miss out on the tribulation. Uh, you're right there too. But how many of you all deserve to be saved? Somebody raise their hand if you deserve the, the grace of God in salvation. Anybody here deserve to be saved? I didn't. I don't deserve to miss out on the wrath of God. But you know what? The wrath that I earned and deserved was already poured out on Jesus Christ at the cross of Calvary. And praise the Lord, there is now no condemnation. So some evangelicals think, well, well the bride needs to go through a little hardship. She needs to be beat up a little bit. It's kind of like an a evangelical purgatory that we need to endure through the tribulation, at least part of it. And I'm thinking, no, not according to Scripture. There is now no condemnation. And we learn in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 that we are to wait for the Son from heaven. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Jesus himself said in Luke 21, But keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have the strength to escape these things that are about to take place. And of course, in Revelation chapter 3, in one of the letters dictated to the various churches, Jesus said, Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. There is no wrath awaiting you and me, brother and sister, if we put our trust in Jesus Christ. You see, there's really only two options. And we're told that in John chapter 3, verse 36. John records, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son. Obey the Son how? By trusting in him, by believing him, by obeying him, and following after him as a disciple. Those who do not trust in God will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. 
It's not that they, they get wrath because they, they earn it over time. No, the wrath of God abides on the person that rejects Jesus Christ. I've heard people say, well, let me think about it a while. I'll get around to deciding. No, you know what? As one uh, famous song says, if you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. If you don't embrace Jesus Christ as Savior and worship Him as Lord, then the wrath of God abides on you. Oh, what a horrible fate. The most famous sermon ever preached in America was preached by a man named Jonathan Edwards who was called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And hearing about the wrath that awaits those who reject the grace of God, people fell out in the pews crying, Oh, how can I be saved? Because how horrible it will be to fall under the wrath of an angry God. And yet that's what hangs over the world today, ready to fall at any moment. Well, so let's look at the timeline, if you will. I already told you we're living in the church age. We have been ever since the cross. But the next prophetic event is not the Antichrist or a particular war or rebuilding a temple or finding a red heifer over in rock wall. The next prophetic event, according to Scripture, is the rapture of the church. Why? Because we're told to be alert and be watching for our redemption draws nigh, to keep our eyes on Jesus Christ, not all those other things that would distract us from looking at Him. And when the rapture occurs, the church will be caught up. Again, the dead will rise first, and then we who are alive will meet them in the air to be with the Lord forever. He'll take us away to enjoy what we know as the marriage feast of the Lamb. One of my friends, Don McGee, was preaching a message like this to a little lady in Louisiana. He said, you know the type. She'd be easier to jump over than to run around. And he said, she said, oh, it's going to be a seven-year supper. Well, however long it lasts, it's going to be glorious because we will be with the Lord in heaven. Where's heaven? Well, wherever, wherever Jesus is, that's heaven. What awaits us? I can only imagine, as the song says. Well, am I going to get my own mansion way off? No, actually, I don't think that's the way it is. I think we are going to be in fellowship with one another and with the Lord in the place he's prepared for us. But what happens on the earth while we are taken out? Well, the earth very quickly goes into a period known as the tribulation. The rapture is not the thing that kicks off the tribulation. I think there will be a period of time when the earth descends into absolute chaos. And in the midst of that chaos, the Antichrist will step forward and he will gain control of the earth in a one-world government. And then he will say, you know what? I can even put right the Middle East struggles and we'll make peace in the Middle East by allowing those Jews to rebuild their temple. And when he signs a peace treaty with the Jewish nation, the seven-year clock will begin marking the tribulation, and God will pour out judgment upon the world for seven years. And at the end of that seven years, so you can mark the clock, you, you actually can't, y'all won't be here. But a person on earth, if they could endure, could mark the clock for seven years and know when Jesus is coming back to earth and the event we know of as the glorious second coming, when he will set foot on the Mount of Olives, when the battle of Armageddon will be fought, not a battle with swords and weapons, a battle where Jesus will utter a word and the armies gathered there in the valley of Megiddo, the Jezreel Valley, will melt where they stand. 
If you ever saw Indiana Jones in the very first movie and you saw the, the Nazis melting, I think that's a pretty good visual of what's going to happen to those armies gathered there in the valley of decision. The Lord will separate the sheep from the goats, and he will begin his millennial reign from the throne of his father David in Jerusalem, and he will rule the world with a rod of iron. Peace, righteousness, and justice will flood the earth. And if Scripture says a stream of living water will even flow from his throne in Jerusalem to the east and the west, and the one flowing to the east will go down to the Dead Sea, and that Dead Sea will teem with life. The whole earth will be restored to the way it was in the Garden of Eden. There will be no poisonous animals or animals eating one another and pestering mankind. No more mosquitoes or chiggers. Praise the Lord. And the handful of people who are able to endure the tribulation, putting their faith in Christ during it, will enter the tribulation and they will begin having babies and more babies and they will repopulate the earth. At the end of the millennium, Satan, who has been chained up, will be loosed to deceive those children and grandchildren who have abided by the rule of Jesus Christ, but not willingly, not because they trusted him and loved and honored him just through grit teeth. And given a chance to rebel, they will, and then Jesus will put an end to that rebellion, and we will go into the eternal state. So this begs a question, why is there going to be a tribulation? What's the purpose? I think it's important to realize there are two or three purposes, and we have to turn our gaze aside from ourselves and our America focus and realize that there are still promises made to the nation of Israel, for example. So in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 27, Moses says this, The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord drives you. There you will serve gods. The work of man's hands, wood and stone, which neither see, nor hear, nor eat, nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search for him with all your heart and all your soul. When you are in distress, and all these things have come upon you, in the latter days you will return to the Lord your God and listen to his voice. For the Lord your God is a compassionate God. He will not fail you, nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant with your fathers, which he swore to them. And so, during the tribulation in the first three and a half years, God's going to pour out wrath on the world. We're getting to that. While the Jews live in relative peace due to this peace treaty they made with the Antichrist. But at the halfway point, Satan will indwell the Antichrist and turn his hatred fully on the Jewish people and seek to annihilate them. Many of them will be killed but a remnant will be preserved, protected supernaturally by the Lord himself. And when they come to the end of themselves and cry out, Baruch Abab Hashem Adonai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and who has already been here once. When they look upon him whom they have pierced and cry out as over an only son, then they will have come to the end of themselves and they will embrace Jesus, Yeshua, as their Messiah. And that's one of the key purposes of the tribulation. What about for the rest of the world? Well, the world is going to endure a period of judgment and wrath. Just for wrath's sake? No, God never pours out his wrath just for the sake of, of pure punishment. There's always a motive. And even 
in wrath. God, as Habakkuk prayed, remembers mercy. You know, it's hard for me and you to have real anger at someone and match it with an equivalent dose of mercy. But God, who is righteous, holy, and merciful, manifests all these facets of his character equally, purely, at all times. So one of the motives, even of pouring out wrath, just as it was with Nineveh, just as it was with Sodom and Gomorrah, is to try to drive people toward repentance. Billy Graham said, the same sun that melts the butter hardens the clay. So some will come to the end of themselves and will accept Christ as their Savior. They will repent, but most people will shake their fist at heaven and curse God. And you say, why, why wouldn't they come to their senses? And my question is, why don't people come to their senses today and recognize that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? No, the world is going to endure a period of unprecedented horror. But we're not going to be here. You can read those passages about how terrible it's going to be as the Antichrist consolidates his power and as he is an instrument of this outpouring of wrath and as God also pours out supernatural wrath. You say, well, Tim, we have troubles right now. I have tribulation every day. Oh, yes, you do. Jesus himself said, in this world you will have trouble, but you have not fallen under the wrath of God. I can't imagine the horror that awaits those who do not escape the wrath that is to come. So where is the church? Well, in Luke chapter 21, verse 38 and 36, we're told that we will not have to endure. As a matter of fact, Jesus says, again, I'll read from Luke. I think your sheep may have originally said Matthew. I've corrected it to say Luke in chapter 21, that men will be fainting and uh, carrying on, but he says, when these things begin to take place, all the signs he's talked about throughout Luke 21, straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing nigh. In verse 36, he says, but keep on the alert at all times, praying that you have the strength to what? To escape all these things which are about to take place and to stand before the Son. In Romans 5, verse 9, Paul, again, writing to the church at Rome, says... Much more then, having now been justified by his blood. Justified means what? Our debt paid in full, canceled. We are righteous before God. Hard to imagine. But the righteousness of Christ credited to us due to his blood. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. And of course, in other verses I could read from, 1 Thessalonians to return there. Chapter 1, verse 10, which says, We should wait for the Son from heaven whom we raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. And also in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, For God has not ordained and destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through Jesus Christ. So there are many examples of this in Scripture. We can talk about the virgins, those who were looking for and ready for Jesus Christ, ready for his imminent return as the bridegroom, and were carried away before the door was closed and there was wailing and gnashing of teeth to those who missed out on the marriage feast of the Lamb. 
We could go to Revelation itself. You know in the first three chapters that John is sharing the revelation of who? His revelation? No. The revelation of Jesus Christ given to John to share with his church. In second and third chapters, Jesus is dictating letters to the seven churches that were located in Asia Minor. But then in chapter 4, John says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. And immediately... I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. John is translated in the twinkling of an eye into the very throne room of heaven. And for the next many chapters of Revelation, as he describes the scene in heaven and what's going on here on earth, all the outpouring of judgment with the breaking of the seal judgments, the bowl judgments, all the various judgments, the church is absent. You say, well, in just a minute, Tim, I see a few mentions of saints during that time. You're right. Those handful of people who come to the end of themselves during the tribulation and put their faith in Jesus Christ, they are considered saints, tribulation saints. The Antichrist will hunt them down and try to kill them. Only a handful will endure and live through the tribulation. But the church is not there. The church is not mentioned in Revelation again until we get to chapter 19 as I've already read, and it talks about the marriage feast of the Lamb. And I think this is a picture that the church is not on earth during the tribulation. No, these promises to the church are ones that we can count on. But there are other promises made to Jesus Christ, to the Jewish people, to the world itself. You know, Scripture says that the whole creation groans to be delivered from the curse. If the creation itself groans, shouldn't I be groaning for my Savior to come and come quickly? Well, I can hardly wait. There are other examples we could talk about. Enoch, who was a righteous man. Why was he given credit for being righteous? Because he walked with God. And before God poured out judgment upon the earth, he was taken. He was raptured to heaven. We could talk about Lot, who before judgment was poured out on Sodom and Gomorrah, escaped the wrath to come. We can even talk about Noah. I think Noah is symbolic for Israel because he was delivered from the judgment poured out upon the whole earth, but he was not taken to heaven. He was given provision to endure that judgment, just as the Jewish people will be given provision, supernaturally protected, to endure, many of them, the tribulation. And Jesus said, if that time had not come to an end, the time of Jacob's trouble, the great tribulation, no one would survive. But it will end. So what about an unbeliever? What awaits them? Well, Paul said in Philippians, for many walk of whom I have often told you and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. They could care less about Christ or about the gospel message. And so if that happens to be you or someone you'd know tonight, then this is the timeline that awaits. We're in the church age, but for too many people, they just couldn't be bothered about what God has revealed and wants us to understand. But soon the rapture will occur. 
and they will be left behind. I fear that some who were given insight into the gospel prior to the rapture may not even be able to accept Christ. If you go to Second Thess- during the tribulation, if you go to Second Thessalonians, verses 10 through 12, it says, and all those with the deception of wickedness for those with all deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved for this reason God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness again don't wait thinking well if the rapture happens then I'll believe Brother, sister, you may not have that opportunity. And quite frankly, you're not promised to get home tonight from this meeting. The Lord could call you to your end this very day. Today is the day of salvation, not sometime in the future. So while the church goes to be with the Lord, the earth will endure a period of tribulation unlike anything the world has ever seen. Millions, billions will be killed. It says in the first period of the tribulation, a quarter of the earth's population will die. That's 1.5 billion, followed by another third, another 1.5 billion. And those who remain will be so miserable, they will want to die, but not be able to even kill themselves. A period of great horror. And then Jesus will come. And those who have still not embraced the Savior, and repented, will be consigned into hell. And they will live there forever in absolute misery, rejected by God because they rejected him. So this begs a question of us. Why is the Lord waiting? Why is he waiting? You know, if I had my choice, Jesus would already have been here. When I first heard messages like this in the early 90s, I was so excited about God's prophetic word. I was eager for the Lord to come right then, and I didn't think we'd get to the year 2000. Well, 2000 came and went. Then I didn't think we'd get to 2010, and certainly not to 2020, but we're still here. Aren't you glad it wasn't up to 10 more when Jesus Christ came? Because maybe you, or you, or some of these young people would not yet have put their faith in Jesus Christ. Who gets to decide when he comes? The Father. And why is he withholding judgment right now? Well, just as he demonstrated great patience in the days of Noah and would have relented in his destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah just for the sake of ten who are righteous, he is withholding judgment right now for three reasons. First of all, because he does not wish any to perish. Peter tells, that, tells us that in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. When he says, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. He's waiting for the sake of the church, so that the bride of Christ will be full to its complete number, known only by the Father, the same great God and Savior who knows the numbers of hairs on your head. And he knows when the right time will be. And finally, because it is not yet the appointed time. You see, Jesus, when he came to Abraham and told him, you're going to have a son, and I will return to you at the appointed time. Who gets to appoint the time? God the Father. You know, it's a beautiful picture of a Jewish wedding 
Anybody here seen Before the Wrath, the great video? The picture of a Jewish wedding is that a bridegroom would propose to a young woman, and if she agreed to the covenant of marriage, they would drink a glass of wine together, sealing that covenant. And from that time forward, they were betrothed, just like Joseph and Mary. They had not yet come together to consummate their marriage, but they were legally married. And the young man would go back to his father's house to prepare a place for his bride. He didn't go build a house off by himself. If you go to the ruins in Israel today, you'll see that villages were close together, many rooms on their homes. Why? Because people wanted to live close together, back then for protection, but also for fellowship, to live with their family and their kin and their friends within that village. So the young man would prepare a room, and then at the time determined only by the father, when the room was ready, when the young man was ready, and when the father determined, it's time. He would tell his son, go and get your bride. And the son would go in great excitement. His friends would gather around, and they'd announce, he's coming, he's coming. And the bride, who was ready to be taken away on a moment's notice, would hear him coming and would be swept away to go back to the father's house, to the place that the bridegroom had prepared for her bride and the bridegroom would consummate their marriage and then emerge to a great feast with all the friends who had been invited. So, brothers and sisters, it's getting gloriously dark right now. But when the trumpet sounds, we are told that the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. And as I said, the dead in Christ will rise first, but we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the air, and so we shall be with the Lord always. It'll be like the Lord has said, let there be light. Oh, I can hardly wait. You know, Paul said this to the Romans, do this, knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is closer to us than when we believe. So the night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife or jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh with regard to its lust. What are you looking forward to? Are you looking forward to the coming of the Lord? Do you ever think about what Jesus is looking forward to? Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. He is in perfect communion with the Father and the Holy Spirit. He has need of nothing. So what's he looking forward to? Well, as our bridegroom. Men, have you ever been a bridegroom looking forward to being united with your bride? Ladies, have you ever been looking forward to being united to your husband as a bridegroom. As our bridegroom, Jesus is looking forward to the Father saying, go and get your bride. Are you looking forward to him with that same sense of anticipation? Because he told us three times in Revelation chapter 22, behold, I am coming quickly. I am coming quickly. I am coming quickly. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And John's answer, the final passage in the book of Revelation and the Bible itself is, Amen, come, Lord Jesus. What are you going to do when he arrives? Queen Victoria, the Queen of England, said, 
I hope he comes during my lifetime because I want to lay my crown at his feet. What will you lay at the feet of Jesus Christ? Paul said, there is a crown of righteousness saved up for me, and not only for me, but for all who have longed for his appearing. A crown of righteousness, much more value than the the crown of the Queen of England. A crown of righteousness not earned by you, but presented to you as a reflection of Christ's righteousness credited to you. And if you long for his appearing, then like Paul, you will earn a crown of righteousness, and you can lay it at his feet when he arrives. Brothers and sisters, I pray that your prayer each and every day is Maranatha, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus, or in my Tim Moore version shorthand, Godspeed. Godspeed your coming, and may it happen soon. Amen.